Hey guys, Alan here from Foundation Property. I'm here with good friend John Staggs from Access Wealth. Um, welcome, guys. We're going to be talking about when is the perfect time to invest. Um, and we're going to get into quite a few topics today. So, John, when is the perfect time to invest? I <laughs> uh, love the loaded question. Um, it's, or would, it, would it shock you if I told you that it does not exist? What do you mean it doesn't exist? So it's a complete fallacy. Um, when, when people are asking for the perfect time, it's, it's really an extension of the when-then fallacy, right? You know, that um, perfect example is waiting to go back to the gym. When's the perfect time to go back to the gym, right? Oh, I'll wait till I feel like it. I'll wait till I feel a bit healthier. I'll wait till I'm not so tired, till I'm not so run down. Um, you know, I'll wait till I start eating a bit cleaner so it, it makes sense for me to go back then. Hmm. None of those are true because they all just become excuses to delay the inevitable, right? So in the same way that there is no perfect time to start saving money, there is no perfect time to go back to the gym, there is no perfect time to invest. Uh, all we have is now. Yeah, 100%. When that, when that applies to the, the property market, I think a lot of people are waiting for the perfect time to get in. So maybe they're waiting till they've got a little bit more of a deposit. Or maybe they're waiting for interest rates to come down a bit. Or maybe they're waiting for COVID to see what happens after COVID. Or maybe they're waiting to see, you know, what happens after um, after the budget or whatever. Whatever it is, they're always waiting for like some signal that they should kind of get into the market and do something. Um, but we've we've covered this so many times before. You really, with the property market, it's it's really not like um, shares or crypto or anything like that. It's really long term. You really have to zoom out a long time to see the benefit of investing in property. Yes, absolutely. But one thing that that really creeps to mind though, when you mention those reasons that people give to not do something, right? So waiting for more savings, waiting to see what happens next with the economy, um, waiting until rates come down. I don't think anyone's actually thought those things through. Um, certainly, when I have people say that to me and we actually start unpacking it, you know, then then it becomes clear that these are just smoke screens, right? So a simple example of more savings. Well, clearly, if you don't have the savings to actually, one, place a deposit for the property or have buffers in place, there'll be a reason not to proceed. So if you can't do that safely, of course, um, then we can't. But assuming you do, assuming you've got the money to actually one, secure the asset, and two, have buffers in place if we do have things such as rental vacancy, if we do have you know, a little bit of negative cash flow for, for a time. Uh, assuming that you can plan and fund for that safely and then still feeling you, be, you need more savings, well, how much more? How far beyond your margins of safety would you have to get before you felt okay to do this? Mm. And when we actually sit and unpack that, there is no number that suddenly feels comfortable, right? There's just nothing with any feasible timeline. What it comes back to is that thought, the per and the person may genuinely believe it. It may not be an intentional smokescreen. It may not be them saying, okay, I'll, I'll just say this because I feel afraid. What they're hoping for is that, the, that if something were to happen in the future, this would feel less scary. Hmm. And that thought is, okay, well, maybe when the rate comes down a bit, it'll feel less scary. It's probably not going to be a big surprise when I say, it ain't going to happen. It's not going to feel as scary. Yeah, no, it's not. Like, especially taking the first step into property investing or any type of investing, it's you, you're not going to wake up um, 
six months later, right? Let, let's say you, you, you wake up in January and you think, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait six months and then I'll be more comfortable. Like it's not going to, you're not going to wake up six months in, you know, June or July and go, you know what? I feel really comfortable now. Um, let's go and buy a property. <laughs> like, yeah, it's, it's always going to feel scary. It's, it's investing, you, you know, yeah. using your money to, to leverage and invest and do stuff with it. It's a massive decision. Um, just doesn't get easier. Um, although I would say, um, it, you know, there's probably some people out there thinking, well, when, when could I be ready? And I, I do think, you know, there is a point there though, that, um, people do need to have sufficient savings and a buffer. You mentioned a buffer. Yes. So if, you, if you are thinking about getting into property and purchasing your first investment, you've got to think of it like a, kind of like a mini business. Um, and put aside, you know, some kind of buffer, right? So, you know, you might have your deposit ready for, to, to purchase. So, um, you'll need your deposit. Let's say we're talking about a $500,000 property. You'll need, you know, 10% deposit. That's 50,000. You probably pay some stamp duty. That could be another, you know, 10 to $30,000, depending on what type of property it is. And then, you know, uh, some other settlement costs like legal costs, etc. Let's say all up, all up around 80,000. 80, yep. You should also have a bit of a buffer in place, let's say five to 10,000 on top of that, so that when you actually acquire the property, you are not feeling the stress as an, as an investor. Like mm -hmm. that's, that's pretty important. But aside from that, I mean, if you're, like you said, John, if you're ready to go, um, and you've got those funds ready, number one, don't leave it in the bank because you're losing money you know inflation is eating into your savings put that money to work put it into the market obviously you know do it safely um but if you do have that buffer and if, you, if you've got that initial deposit and everything there's there's no better time like the earlier you get into property the sooner you'll see the benefits so yeah indeed as long as it's being done safely as you've alluded to so i think the the real key that people need to what i needed to, to do for a long time as well i think one of my big mistakes and what why i'm so passionate about sharing this as well um what one of my biggest screw-ups is again waiting for perfect conditions right for the point where i feel okay with it and there, there are so many reasons that's a terrible idea so one, of course, that perfect conditions will never come along. There's never a perfect time to start saving, to start dating, to start doing anything, right? We've, all we have is you can either do it now, you can keep the can down the road, mm -hmm. right? So that's the first part of it. The second part is that, again, if we're looking at an asset, we're looking to hold long-term. If the plan only works when conditions are perfect, what happens when they become imperfect again? As they will. Mm -hmm. Because if we're talking about holding an asset for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, well, do you think that, things will go bad in that time. Well, like give, give, it, give us an example. Like what do, you, what do you mean by that exactly? Going bad in, in any respect. Well, there's a million things that could happen. So let's, so, let's uh, use some recent examples. Yeah, so sorry to cut you off there. Like what I mean is like, you know, what, what's the difference between setting, up, setting yourself up for like kind of perfect conditions and then compared to like non-perfect conditions and then why would it make more sense to just – Hey, prepare for the worst. Sure. So, so let's use, I guess, the recent history as an example. Let's pretend that you had the foresight to enter the market at the start of the pandemic. Interest rates were about to drop to record lows. You could have gotten assets really 
at very competitive prices because vendors didn't have a lot of confidence. They didn't know what was happening. And you've come in now at the perfect time. So let's imagine you found the perfect time to invest. You could have gotten into the market when rates were low and prices were low, pretty much the same as the start of COVID, right? So you've gotten an asset at a, at a fantastic price. You've gotten it with when finance is also very cheap. Mm. However, the only time the cash flow actually works is when these conditions are met. So as soon as we, as we are now in a, in a position where three years later, rates have come up significantly. Prices have also come up as well. But if you're not able to hold that property because you didn't cash flow it correctly at the start of things, hmm. then you only have two choices. One is to sell the asset down and to not have that burden of expense. Or the second one is to make sure that you can do the things required to actually afford the expense of holding a property that does not cash flow well, which is something that we see every day. So I've spoken to people who've taken on second jobs in order to keep their portfolio running. Mm. Um, I've spoken to people who've had to let go of assets they didn't want to uh, because they put themselves in a bind. So if the plan only works in the, in the best case scenario, then changes changes to, to conditions will occur over a long enough period of time. It's not an if, it's it's going to happen. Yeah. I think it's safe to say like, you know, when, when you're planning, <clears throat> when you're planning to buy a property, you really should be putting uh some numbers down on a page so some type of feasibility study uh, a cash flow projection a forecast putting all those expenses that you might incur on the property uh look we, we do this all the time right you, you, you've got to put you've got to punch all the numbers in and then put in different scenarios scenario a scenario b scenario c and then c that's when you can actually tell if this if you could actually hold this property if it's going to be if it's a, it's going to be, it's going to work for you, and B, if it's going to work for you f- with for you for the long term. So that's that's really important. Like you should be planning ahead with your portfolio, kind of figuring out, okay, this is where these are the current conditions. If the conditions yep. were to change, like the rates would go up, or the rent would come down a bit, or um, expenses might go up, could we? And we've got a buffer, and our buffer goes down. Like we've got to be thinking about all those things. Um, and, and that's how you kind of determine at the micro level, is, is this going to make sense for me, this, this asset, this investment? And you need to come down to a decision-making framework, right? So be able to reduce all those decisions to a simple binary yes or no. So if I have the funds put aside to make sure that I can pay for this property for six to 12 months, if something terrible were to happen, um, does that give me enough comfort to actually hold the asset? Yes mm. or no, mm. right? Um, you know, but that's a pretty pretty simple one. You know, do we have enough evidence to believe that if we were to hold this asset, we'll actually see at least average growth, at least doubling our money in ten years? Yes or no? Mm-hmm. Right. So it's really chunking down all of these all these bigger pieces of data into simple yes no binary decisions. And if yeah. we get all the yeses for all, everything in our decision tree, then we move forward. Yeah. Now you just said. Um you know, one of the, because, because the market's historically nationally grown at around 6.8%, you know, every year, which is, you know, property tends to double every 10, 11, 12 years. And you mentioned, Hey, look, could, is this based on all, all the data we have now, could the property double in 10 years from now? I think in, you know, actually what people should be considering is like, what if it, takes 15 years to, to double in value. 
and mm. you should be exploring that as well because it sometimes it can happen you know nobody has a crystal ball of course um and you've got to look at that and go hey look could could this take a little bit longer what if it took 15 years to get the growth that i'm looking for um and then yeah. you've, you've got to explore um what happens if yeah you don't it doesn't double in 10 what happens if it takes 15 but also explore like okay well what if you don't do anything well, you're going to get zero growth so i think that's exactly. important. like put that into the plan put that into your portfolio plan if you if you want to be ultra conservative put a put a 15 year mark on it and hey I'm, i might not get the double the growth that i'm looking for i won't double my asset value in 10 years it might take 15 years and hey look if it takes 15 years that's better than like not it not happening happening at all right so yep absolutely we don't we don't need perfect outcomes and, and again the um the indication was that look with the evidence we've got do we believe it's it's possible or likely to happen for sure yeah. um, is it going to happen every time of course not um which really brings us into the current conditions and probably what a lot of people uh, might have on top of their mind interest rates right mm. um i've got a lot of thoughts on this many of them include four letter words so you probably better start this one alan oh well you know at the moment as of the you know the recording of this which is you know our, our podcasts are a little bit delayed um but this is the 5th of august 2023 there's been a a pause in the in the rate rises um so the the rba's just basically announced that there's there's not any rate rise um at this time mm -hmm. so everybody's kind of talking about it well i mean what do you think is going to happen uh with the market kind of short medium long term at the moment let's say a month out three months out six months out yeah look uh so for the for, for month one to month three i expect very little change to be honest so a rate pause is not a rate drop obviously we're not really seeing anyone's borrowing capacity change of course it's the same as it was last month um there are certain markets in the country we've seen returning returning confidence and seen price growth throughout the year so anywhere where there's a low enough low enough level of supply there's definitely been the demand there ready to meet it uh, to be honest, the the, re the reason I don't think a lot about it is because I don't care either way, right? Which is probably a, a bizarre thing to hear. But but I know that ultimately, over time, we are going to see inflation get under control. We are, of course, seeing population going through the roof, and we do have fundamentally low supply. So for me, it's a non-issue as long as we know that we can safely get someone into a property. I, I mm. don't care any further than that. Yeah. Well, you you just mentioned a point there which is um different markets so uh, you, you mentioned supply so when there's there's limited supply so 100 percent in the last six months through all of the rate rises there are specific markets across australia that have gotten 10 to 15 percent capital growth um, mm. just because there's very limited supply and there's huge demand like massive yes. demand so you know there's there's a lot of generalization around rates and people who are kind of thinking about jumping into the market waiting to observe to see what happens with rates but there are people out there who don't care <laughs> like you said like you don't care people want to get into property they want to get into their homes and w what i've seen is just that people are going to much more affordable markets that's it mm -hmm. so 
look, we've seen this, you know, we, a few episodes ago, we did uh, the whole rate history in Australia and how it affected property prices. Property prices haven't slowed down for 50 years. You know, no. $25,000 in Melbourne 50 years ago. It's around $900,000 today. And that's through a peak of 16% in rates. So right now, even with all that's going on, the uncertainty around rates, there are, there are markets, there are some super hot markets where you can still get good rental yields and the activity is so high. There are so many people trying to get into that market and there's such limited supply. We are seeing price growth right now. Even in the last year, some people are building $75,000 to $100,000 equity, even in, in today's current in rate environment. So yeah, I mean, look, you should care about rates in terms of how does that affect my cash flow? But, you know, if you want to use property to create wealth, it is a, it's a long-term game. So you've kind of, wait, you know, consider it, but it shouldn't, you shouldn't talk yourself out of doing it because, you know, the, the conditions aren't perfect. And that's the whole point yeah. of this episode is that there's, there is just no perf there's no such thing as perfect condi conditions, you know? Yeah. And, and look, I do want to qualify my statement a little bit better as well, because it may come off as a little bit callous and cranky. Um, look, clearly for an owner-occupier, that, that doesn't hold as true, right? So are, are we seeing a lot of people really being squeezed between cost of living pressures with virtually every expense going up? Yes. Um, am I happy about that? No not even close to. So that, that does, of course, frustrate me and worry me just as much as anyone else. Mm. Um, but in respect to investing, do I see it as a roadblock or a barrier? Of course not. Uh, particularly in a market where we are seeing, as you mentioned, Alan, very high rental yields coming through. Long as the asset cash flows well and you can afford to hold it and that we know that look, what's likely to happen over a two-year period. Right? So let's think in a bigger timescale. Um, or even a, even in a 12-month period. Do we think rates will keep rising for the next 12 months? Probably not. Right. Will we maybe see one or two rises? Sure. Um, does anyone know? Not really. Um, I think it's really telling to remember that towards the tail end of last year, the chief economists for all four of the big banks, oh, sorry, for all the big four banks, if I can get my words right, um, all of them came through with cash rate predictions topping out at 36 to 3.85%. And the consensus was that once they hit that peak, they would then pause and then start declining. Right? Mm -hmm. So these are all some pretty smart people. Um, all of them know a lot more than I do, certainly about economics. None of them got it right. Yeah. So is any of us going to get it right? Probably not. Right? So mm -hmm. that's where, to me, the idea of predicting when will rates cap out doesn't matter. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's a really important point. Consensus, right? Consensus comes from what the the news that comes out and the and the big four banks and chief economists but really no one has a crystal ball and no one really knows what's going to happen and yeah yeah kind of annoys me a little bit with uh, economists because i'm sure they're not um yet yeah, look they're they're in, i'm sure they're intelligent people but every time i see something in the in the news about an economist saying kind of predicting where the property market's going to go. I always like to pick it apart and then 
I think I've, I mean, we should do that on another episode, but I think I've saved some, art. I'm starting to save articles of when it was posted, which date, because I want to, I want to fast track. I want to go forward and then look back and see if they were actually right. And in most cases, they've actually all been wrong. Like I remember during COVID, um, who was it? I think it was one of the big ones, CBA or Westpac or something. They thought during COVID property prices would drop by up to 28% something like that. I think that that particular paragraph was taken well and truly out of context, right? So part of the modeling that, that actuaries are, are supposed to do uh, in addition to, to uh, what they believe is likely to happen is they're also required to create doomsday scenarios, right? So putting the modeling forward. Um, so if they were to assume that the worst things were to happen and what is the nightmare scenario if everything went absolutely pear-shaped, then what happens, right? So typically, and, and I think um, there's really a, a toxic relationship at play there, right, between both economists and uh, some journalists, not all, but some journalists for sure, in terms of sensationalizing the idea of, of um, any sort of potential disaster, right? If it bleeds, it leads. So trying to paint a picture of financial Armageddon at the start of a pandemic, well, who cares about the amount of people it's going to, sh going to scare shitless that's going to sell us a lot of cop, right? So that was definitely a, a very irresponsible... I, I know the, the article you're citing, and it was irresponsible as fuck, right? So whoever did that should be fucking ashamed of themselves, and please don't, don't sense me there, because if you're listening, fuck you. Really, fuck you. Okay. Um, I want to make my feelings really clear on that. Um, it was just disgusting. So, yeah, that, that's probably a topic for another day. The why why you should really take anything you read from from any form of media with a grain of salt mm. um but yeah so coming back to the point are we likely to see the doomsday scenarios play out not often and yeah if we if we go back through history when when crappy things have really occurred property's just been very 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 resilient for the most part yeah i mean it's a i mean if if we look at the australian property market specifically it's it's kind of a safe haven when when everything else is a bit chaotic you know so um yeah it's it's very very consistent very stable like we've looked at that multiple times and if you want to um get a copy of, of some charts send us a message we'll we'll send that to you we'll send you a little quick video as well and uh maybe uh, a short clip from from one of the other episodes we've done but you know 50 years of data doesn't lie. The, the numbers don't lie. Like it's, it's a very, very stable for very specific reasons. But uh, yeah. yeah, you, you also mentioned as well, John, like, um, Hey, look, no, nobody's got a crystal ball, right? Yep. Nobody really knows what's going to happen. There's no perfect time to invest, but you, you also mentioned that, you know, okay, if we don't have a crystal ball, we, we should probably have some kind of, um, decision-making framework in place? Like, what did you mean by that? Yeah. So if we, we, we really want to come back to first principles, right? So working out, okay, do we need to invest, right? Is there a problem we're looking to fix that property can fix, mm -hmm. right? Now, if we understand and believe that, okay, great. So from there, once we've, once we've established that, we need to work out, okay, what, what kind of property would actually then fix, start fixing this problem? It's rare that one could do it on its own, um, 
Perhaps it could if we're talking purely about a mortgage elimination strategy without looking at the bigger picture for someone's future. So but let's actually start with that. Let's, let's say we've, we've embarked on a really basic mortgage elimination strategy. Uh, one asset held for a five to 10 year period could actually do it and that we're going to begin with that. So now we're going to have a budget determined by working with a broker, understanding our borrowing capacity. We'll have a target in mind based on the, the mortgage in our home we need to eliminate. So we'll work out a, a, a figure of capital growth we need to achieve, the equity we need to build to actually eventually sell that property and pay our home off. Right? So now we've got some goalposts to work with. So now that we understand the equity we need to build and the timescale we're working towards, so we need to figure out, okay, how do I then find a property that I can then hold for this 10-year period that is very likely to give me the growth I need and where I can feasibly cash flow this property the whole time without actually stripping food off the table. Hmm. So we draw it all back to first principles and then you can break those down even further. So what are the likely indicators that will tell me I'm going to have capital growth, diversity of employment, strong economy, low supply, high demand, reasons for demand is proven by infrastructure, right? And obviously many other beyond that, but that, that's a, a good enough start for us, right? Then we look to the cash flow. So based on the rental yields, averaging for that sort of property in that area, what am I actually receiving? Uh, what is my mortgage expense? What are my other expenses? Council rates, building insurance, landlord's insurance, all the other costs I'll accrue as an investor. Um, if I use the, the current vacancy rate, what's the likely vacancy I'll have per year? Accounting for all that, what does the cash flow actually look like dollars and cents? Is it neutral? Am I a little bit positive? Am I chipping in a little bit? Am I a little bit negative? Hmm. Right? If I'm a little bit negative, based on the cash buffer I can put in, how long can I hold before that property for? Yep. Right? So if we start ticking off all these boxes really, really objectively, we're either going to get to a yes or a no at the end. I just want to touch on that quickly as well. Um, you know, two two years ago, it was pretty easy to, because of, because of the rate conditions, the, the rate environment, it was pretty easy to get a positive cash flow property. Yep. More and more these days, we are seeing more neutral to negative cash flow properties, even in really strong uh, rental income markets. Indeed. Um, so that's also something to consider as well. Um, I'm actually helping a, a, a friend invest and, you know, based on her specific situation, we looked at a few different properties and one of the markets that she was interested in, you know, definitely going to get capital growth, um, bit of a no-brainer, major capital city, um, but the, the yield isn't, isn't as strong as, let's say, other markets. Um, yep. So when we ca when we calculated everything, her income, all of her expenses, tax deductions, maintenance, everything, her net cash flow on this property is probably going to be, let's say, three to four thousand dollars per year in the current okay. rate market. And then we 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 calculate, okay, what if rates went up a whole two percent? And then yep. it was going to affect, it was going to cost her maybe like seven to $8,000 per year to hold the property. Um, okay. and, I, and it, look, that's not ideal, but how else is she going to create five to $600,000 of equity over a 10 year period without doing any investing? 
sure. You, well, well, let's break that right down, though. She'd have to work two to three jobs to create that herself. Um, and then you're talking about, okay, could you comfortably give up, let's say, five to $6,000 a year to hold this asset that's going to give you five to $600,000 in equity? We yep. kind of just broke it down and made, made, kind of made sense that, hey, look, I, sh I should be looking into this because at the end of the day, that's not going to, um, I'm not going to starve. I, I can make it even simpler than my crappy dad joke analogies, right? Even though I'm not a dad. Um, so, so, so hypothetically, Al, this property, how much was the, the purchase price for it? It's around 550. 550. Okay. And we've got a fair bit of evidence that it's probably going to double in value in 10 years, right? But let's, let's assume it takes us 15, right? So, so let's imagine that in 10 years' time, uh, this property is worth, let's call it $900,000, right? It hasn't quite doubled in value. So we've got profit somewhere in the order of 350K, right? Assuming we've sold down at that point in time, a capital gains tax probably around about 50K-ish, right? Let's, let's assume a bit more. Let's assume we've got a, got a neat profit of about 280K all up, right? So now if I told you that, that you could go around the corner from your house and use an ATM, right? So you mentioned the cash flow for this property was three to 4,000 a week currently. Worst case scenario numbers, oh, sorry, per year, I should say, not per week. Yep. Three, three to 4,000 per year currently, about 8,000 per year, worst case scenario, right? So about 120 a week or thereabouts. That would have cost you. Now, if I told you there was an ATM around the corner from your house that you could stick 120 bucks a week into, and in 10 years' time, you could pull out 280K, would that seem like a dumb idea? Yeah, that makes complete sense, right? And that's that's the whole point is you got to look long-term uh, uh, and look at, hey, look, I'm putting money into this, but there is an outcome at the end of this. And people get people get a little bit. My numbers are up as well. About 150 a week. Sorry. Okay. Well, let's say it's 150 a week. Um, which is how much is that per year? That's uh, how much did we say that was? That was three to four thousand dollars per year, something like $7, that. Seven thousand eight hundred dollars per year. Seven thousand eight hundred dollars. That's 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 using the nightmare numbers. That's saying that's that's saying rates have gone up by two percent. So that's saying yeah, seven seven thousand eight hundred a year, right in total. Um, Seven thousand eight hundred a year over ten years, seventy-eight grand. Let's actually break that down into a shorter time frame, so that people listening to this can can kind of get it on a shorter time scale. Because yep. that's the, that's the problem with properties. It's not sexy. It's not like no. crypto, it's not like shares. It takes a takes a fucking long time for it to happen. It, it does. So maybe let's break it down into like a yearly chunk. So what are we getting back after? capital gains first of all sure. we're 280 and we're yeah. so that's $28,000 per year over a t over a 10 year period period that's right yeah yep. okay, so it's $28,000 a year and how much money are you putting in per year it was 7,800 yep right we'll let's call just it eight grand eight yep so you're so every year you're putting in $8,000 and you're getting $20,000 back. That seems like a pretty good deal to me. Yeah. Let's break it down monthly now. So if I put in, what's 8,000 divided by 12? And 20,000 divided by 12, and let's work out monthly, and then let's work out weekly. So 8,000 divided by 12, number of the beast, of course, 666. Is so, it really? 
Indeed. Yeah. Maybe we picked the, the wrong example. The well, wrong let's, let's let's call it six sixty, right? So we said we said seven eight uh, per year. So let's call it six fifty per month, right? So so twenty eight thousand divided by twelve gets us to two thousand three hundred and thirty three dollars less our six fifty gets us roughly one thousand six eighty per month. Monthly, okay. So we're putting yep. in how much a month? Six sixty. Yep. Well, six six fifty six fifty and getting one thousand six eighty back per month. That's like almost a three x. Yep. Pretty it's well bang kind, on. It's kind of like you taking fifty bucks. Like you said, you go around the corner and there's a special, there's a magical ATM. That's like you getting fifty bucks, putting it into the ATM. And the ATM goes, thanks for that 50 bucks. Here's 150 back. Yep. That's the, what, the, ob that's the obvious, obvious reason people don't do this, of course. There is delayed gratification. It is a long-term payoff. We don't get <laughs> the, the visceral feeling of the, those, those yep. schmackers straight in the hand. That's, right? that, that is the problem with um, people, though, is it's, they, they can't handle the delayed gratification. Like they, People want things like now. Of course. But, I, don't I don't exclude myself from that. One of the reasons I love property is because if all the money was in my hand, I would do dumb things with it. I'm, yeah. I'm terrible in pulse control. But, you know, in, the, in this example, we've just picked a very, very average scenario where a property mm -hmm. could double in 10 years. We've broken it down into a year and in months. And that's what it's actually giving you after you've paid your capital gains and everything. And that's yeah. just one, that's just one property. So yeah. yeah, you put in $600 into this magical ATM and it spits out almost three times more around 1600, 1700, something like that. What about on a weekly basis? Let's maybe calculate it weekly and then daily. I'm just curious to see what the numbers are. I, I couldn't be bothered. No. <laughs> I I actually I'm going to do this. I've got my calculator here. So six sixty. Oh God. Six sixty. Of, of all the times you to get a math boner, really, that's six fifty. Yeah, six fifty per month. So divide by four point three three. Can't help myself. You put the problem out there. I've got to do it. Oh God. Yeah, okay. Six fifty. Okay. So we're putting in into the magical ATM. We're putting in hundred and fifty two dollars. Oh per God. Week. It shouldn't be one fifty on the dot. Round 152, and then I'm just going on rough figures here. I'm just going to round it up to 1700 was the per month. Divide that by 4.33 is 400, 392. Yep. So on a weekly basis, so if you, you know, long term, the property is going to create $280,000 in equity after capital gains. These are all rough calculations, guys, okay? But um, on a weekly basis, you're putting $152 into the magical property ATM, and it's giving you almost $400 back. God, I shouldn't have given the dad joke to an actual dad. Yeah, you shouldn't have. And, and I'm going to go uh, further. I've, no, God, I've created a monster. Yeah, you have. We're going to go further. I want to work that out daily. You need, you need to break these things down because this is what people don't get. You've got you to break it down. So 392... <laughs> I'm people too. Hey, look. For God's sake. <laughs> We're almost there. All right. $56 
is your return and 152 divided by seven. Okay. Per day, this is how it is daily. So you go to your magical ATM, putting in $21 and it's giving you $56 back. Yep. More than double, basically. Pretty good. Where do we find those ATMs? Oh, we find them in the property market, but yep. it takes ages for it to happen. Yes. That's, that's essentially, and that's, that's an average pro performing pro property, right? Uh, well, underperforming. So, I mean, I've worked out roughly on a 5% capital growth rate. Okay. Again, if we go to market averages, if more. we, yeah, well, well, if we, if we, if we get really specific with the numbers, so from 1960 up until uh, this year with the month to date data, um, the capital growth rate post COVID has actually averaged 7.8% per annum. So slightly ahead of double, doubling over that 10 year period. Exactly double would be 7.2% compound growth per annum. 7.8 means that you're pretty much there in year nine to nine and a half. So again, yeah, call it, call it 10 years for our numbers. All right. Got it. Cool. So, the, so these numbers on, on 5% are, well, again, I, I would assume for, for a well-researched property, wildly conservative. Well, now that we've worked that out, where do we go from here? Now that we know there is a magical ATM that does exist and it's called the property market, what's next? Well, look, to me, it's pretty simple, right? So cut the noise out, even though it's, it's hard to do, right? Um, you go to a barbecue, you go to a dinner party, Everyone's talking about this stuff. Everyone's, well, not everyone necessarily, but most people are at least a little bit fearful um, and will tell you all the reasons not to do it. So first things first, cut out the noise. Work out for yourself, do you want and need to do this? If you do, create a, a framework to, to, make, to help you make decisions because people are terrible at making big decisions like this. We, we don't do it naturally. If you don't have a framework, if you don't have a logic to follow, you're just going to make it too hard for yourself and not do anything, which is not going to help you, right? So that's pretty much it. Cut the noise out of your ears. Come up with an objective criteria as to what works and what doesn't. Stick with it. Yeah. And you don't want to, you don't want to ignore the, the market conditions. Like, obviously, you, you need to take those things into account, but you don't want to get into a situation where now you're talking yourself out of doing something because hey, look, if you can put 20 bucks into yeah. something and it gives you $51 back, whatever we worked, whatever it was that we worked out, that's a pretty good damn deal. And we worked that out at a, a, a kind of yeah. underperforming asset. Anything else? Uh, yeah, and um, what you mentioned is bang on. Definitely don't ignore the conditions, but don't take people's opinions of conditions or emotional reactions to conditions as fact really just analyze the conditions of what they are and then accept them and then work out does it make sense is it safe or is it not yeah and and just just to add to that that last thing as well you know where we worked out on a daily basis what property is actually giving you we picked a an average scenario it is actually possible to get better than that like you could break it down on a better performing property and you could put in twenty dollars and the return you're getting on that property could be close to a hundred dollars. Like imagine that putting in twenty bucks into a machine and then it spits out a hundred dollars. So, you know, um, you you can find even better performing properties than than the scenario that we just came up with.
So, of course. Yeah. So I think that's a, a pretty simple summary about when is a perfect time to invest does not exist. Do we need to take the current conditions into account when reviewing an asset? Of course we do. Do we want to use the current conditions as a reason to not do something? Of course not. What we do want to establish is clear margins for safety, a clear decision-making framework, and understanding that when we do try and predict what's going to happen for the future, no one will ever get it completely right. All we can do is work off best principles and let that guide us and then work out, you know, do we want to take action? Do we not? And if we've worked out, we do want to take action to find the safest way to do it. So that's me spent. Alan, any, any final thoughts you want to add in? I think this episode kind of really highlights that even in current conditions, look, you should be considering property anyway. Like you're not going to get um, perfect. You're never going to get perfect conditions. So even if your property's um, cash flow negative, you know, the yield isn't amazing, look at the long-term benefit. And then as we've broken down, it, it, it's property's kind of like a, like a magic ATM. You put money in and it spits money out. The only thing is that you just don't see it straight away. You get the result later. But, you know, unless you can find something that can give you, you know, the same return, like putting $20 in and spitting out 50 bucks with relatively the same risk, okay, don't do property. Go and do that other thing. But I don't know of anything else where, you know, if you can comfortably hold it, if you've got the right buffers in place, that it can really do that for you and create that wealth. Um, yeah, just do it. It's a magic, it's a magical money machine. Um, look into it and do it safely and yeah, happy investing. Happy investing. See you guys. See you guys.